Sorry, everyone. My internet dropped out and I've had to tether to my phone, but we're going to be looking at Psalm 145 this morning. I would invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 145. As you open there, listen to these words. I'm going to read it aloud to you, and then we'll make reference to this passage throughout. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. And his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. To make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all of his words and kind in all of his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all of his ways and kind in all of his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him and to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. Father, please help us as we open this word to see the appropriate praise that is due to you in all of your glory and wonder, as we see the mighty acts that you have done, the wonderful words that you have told, may we praise you in your beautiful triunity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, there's something to be said of tradition, and the Jewish people used to recite this psalm three times a day. Now, this tradition was intended to really orient them to a particular uh, frame for reality. God is worthy of praise, and he will be praised constantly and forever. The reminder of this reality, of course, would be instructive on most days, but especially when the malaise of life encroaches on you. I'm not sure if you're like me, but for me personally, I find it very hard when little bits disrupt my rhythm of life, when minute changes to my circumstance actually impact uh, the ways that I would regularly engage with something like God's word. So holidays are the worst for me. Uh, my rhythms are upset and before long, I feel very distant from God. But what's worse, of course, is when something like tragedy strikes. Your loved one is lost. You become very ill or perhaps a pandemic sets in. It's in these moments that the wisdom of some traditions become very apparent. 
Questions like, who provides for the world? Who has power to control all circumstances? Who can deliver what we need most in the times of our most desperate need? The answer in Psalm 145 is the Lord, the King. He can give us all that we need. In fact, he provides for all creation. This psalm is a reality check for all of us about what's most fundamental to our existence. We all depend on the Lord. Well, today I want to look at this psalm in three parts, and my hope is that it offers us real comfort and assurance and grounding in days like these. But actually, I have another sneaky agenda, and that is that I'm going to be preaching three times between now and the end of the term. And my hope is that this will actually set an overarching picture for some of the basics of what we might call political theology. So I'm trying a, a topical series, and I'm hopeful that this will actually set the grand stage for what we're going to be engaging in the weeks to come. So the first point that I want to take notice of is in the first seven verses, there is eternal and unending praise. Now, what I mean by eternal is it goes on forever, but it's also incessant. It doesn't stop. It keeps going on and on and on. And it's because the Lord's greatness is unsearchable. We're instantly swept up into this chorus of praise here in the psalm. And in fact, I think this psalm is the only one that's titled with praise as the title. It's a praise of David. It's the last psalm of David, in fact. And what it really is, is uh, a very thought through praise. We often think about praise being something quite spontaneous that just kind of happens upon us in life. We kind of just sporadically offer something up in, in recognition of something. But, but what this is here is actually premeditated. In fact, it's an artful literary experience for us because it's an acrostic poem, as you know, which begins with one letter of the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet. And for the astute students out there, you're thinking, I only see 21 verses. Well, well done you. And that's why you have this extra little bit in the brackets in verse 13 to make up for the missing letter there. And uh, that's why we, where we get our 22nd letter at the end of verse 13. We should not miss the early words of what David says to us in recognizing his right place under my God and king, much like a loyal servant would come before a king and fall down and maybe kneel to kiss his hand and pledge allegiance. David, the king, is pledging his allegiance to the divine king, the sovereign over all. And this is appropriate, of course. And his praise, he says, will be day in and day out forever and ever. And notice that David says he is simply joining a chorus line for generation after generation will declare the Lord's praises. But each new declaration is simultaneously instructive as well as perpetual. Here's what I mean by that. Each praise declares truth about God, who is king over all of the earth. And with each episode of praise, there is instruction to new hearers offering them an opportunity to join in that chorus song, to be swept up into the praise of the one true God and King who is over all. Well, what are the truths that are praiseworthy about God in this passage? David gives us at least three here in this early section. The first is that the Lord is almighty. You see this in verse four, the generation shall declare your mighty acts. And again in verse six, they shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. This tells us the Lord is a God who acts in history, 
and he does so with power. This means that he accomplishes that which he purposes to do. And second, the Lord is majestic in verse 5. It's upon the Lord's majesty that David takes pause to reflect. And it's difficult for us, I think, in our experience to capture beauty when we can't behold it with our eyes. I mean, we can't say, oh, there is the Lord. I see him. Look how beautiful. And yet we remember that the world is the theater of God's glory. And it's the beautiful canvas on which he paints, not just in natural beauty like a sunset, but all the kind relations that he shows and keeps with his creation, which feeds into this final Notice for praise, the Lord is good. Look at verse 7. The Lord is famous for his abundant goodness, and the loud singing is in honor of his righteousness. I often admire the likes of someone like Jonathan Edwards, who would ride on horseback and would be reflecting on uh, the world around him, but not just to appreciate the natural beauty of the world, but the God who made the world. He was captivated by the glory of God the beauty of God, and he had, you know, pen and paper or whatever it was in his pocket. He had little fasteners so he could write notes to himself and reflect as he was going on his way to keep an eye out for opportunities to observe the glory of the Lord and the world around him. Little windows into God's goodness. But this sort of observation isn't really a treasure hunt, is it, as much as it is a disposition to praise. For in looking out on the world with eyes of faith, the posture of the believer is one that recognizes my God and my King constantly at work and, li and lives in, uh, that live appropriately in response and worship to this God. I wonder when you think about your own praise life, is it one of intermittent praise like mine, really? Is it a start-stop, very occasional time where you offer half-baked and maybe half-hearted reflections. What David is modeling to us here is an appropriate attunement to the praise of God, ever observing, ever praising God for his acts and his character. God's greatness is unsearchable, worthy of incessant and eternal praise. And that brings us to our second point, our second section of this psalm, where David tells of the Lord's eternal reign, his kingship and his kingdom, in both covenantal and common rule. Covenantal and common rule. That is a particular and a general kind of rule. We see this really set out for us early on here in verses 8 and 9. They set the stage. Verse 8 is the declaration of God's character from the episode in Exodus 34 when Moses asked God to show him his glory. And Calvin calls this the most satisfactory description of God's nature given us as can anywhere be found. That's pretty profound. This is the most satisfactory uh, declaration of God's character here, his nature. This is a declaration of how God relates to his covenant people. This is the Lord who is near to his people that he's redeemed and brought into gracious relationship with himself. And in verse 9, there's a depiction of God's common care. So let me read this out. Verse 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Beautiful covenantal relationship. And yet commonly, listen to this, the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. So although uh, not all people know him salvifically, his character is unchanging. 
He is good and he's merciful unto the whole. And once again, Calvin says that the forgiveness of sin is a treasure from which the wicked are excluded. But their sin and depravity does not prevent God from showering down his goodness upon them, which they appropriate, appropriate without being at all sensible of it. You can think about Jesus' words in Matthew 5 where he talks about the rain falling on the just and the unjust. God is the common provider for all creation. He still upholds it and sustains it in a wonderfully beautiful way. Well, these verses lead into the response of creation to God. And in what we see in verses 10 to 13, the whole of creation will give thanks to God because of his good rule and provision. But in particular, in the most intimate sense, the saints, that is the covenant people of God, will bless him and make him and make known his glory to the whole of humanity. That's the purpose for which they are telling out these deeds. Look at verse 12, to make known to the children of men your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. So the praise of the saints actually serves a missional purpose. What the creation knows and appreciates generally the saints know specifically, and they tell of it, the glory of God's eternal kingdom. He is king. He is king over all, now and forever. And this ties straight into our final section of the psalm, which is found from the end of 13 into verse 20. There is satisfying provision for all. Deeply satisfying provision for all. Because the Lord's provision is irreproachable. We see in these final verses an exposition of what's already been shown of the Lord's relation to both his creation and his covenant people. First of all, he relates caringly for all of his creation. You can see this in verses 14 to 16. He upholds all who are falling down and raises up those who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you. You give them their food in due season. You open your hand. And you satisfy the desire of every living thing. God's hand opens up. You can almost imagine him putting food in someone's mouth. He is the one that is delivering these goods. Notice how the Lord provides the needs of every creature, even satisfying that language of satisfaction there, the desire of all. There is no living being who is cut off from the Lord's generous hand. In short, the Lord provides for and sustains the whole creation. This brings us to our second point, which takes a little bit more specific focus in verse 18 and 19. There's a nearer relationship to God's people. The Lord hears those who call on him, that is, those that know him in truth. And the Lord fulfills the desires of those who fear him, even giving them salvation, the deepest need of any human being. So there's a universal satisfaction, but satisfaction of a different kind. Commonly, there's a temporary kind of upholding of life, but for the covenant people, there is an eternal upholding of life because God himself saves them. So, in the midst of these verses, there is a declaration of God's character that we shouldn't miss in verse 17. He is righteous in all of his ways, and he is kind in all of his works. In some ways, there would, you would think that there may not be any need for this kind of a statement. I mean, we've been beholding some richness about God's character. Richness that I think is observable 
observable to the naked eye in one sense, that everybody's kind of being sustained in a general sense. The world keeps going round. The rains are producing crops and the crops are producing food. And there is a, an ordering to life that is there that is actually attributable to God's goodness. But Calvin, once more, the ever wise pastor tells us that although knowledge of God, uh, although all acknowledge God to be just, most men are no sooner overtaken by affliction than they quarrel with his severity. Unless their wishes are immediately complied with, they are impatient, and nothing is more common to, that to, than to hear his justice impeached. As it is everywhere abused by the wicked imputations men cast upon it, here it is very properly vindicated from such ungrateful treatment and asserted to be constant and unfailing, however loudly the world may disparage it. Let's situate this in our own context for a moment, what Calvin is saying. So many, in fact, all have received from God's hand. God has sustained their very life and breath every single day. And yet in a moment, in a single hardship, as the circumstances of the world around us change and as need is found, people immediately cry foul. How could you, God? Why would you, God? Where are you, God? Now, I wanted to begin this sermon with some kind of story that would talk about the hardships that people are facing in these times. And by the way, there may be some of you that are facing these hard times. I know people that are really facing hard times right now. But I didn't want to go for low-hanging emotional fruit. That is, it, we all like a sad story, and a sad story is easy to tell, and it gets us in the, on the wagon in one sense. But the reason why I didn't do it isn't just because I didn't want to go for low-hanging fruit, but I also didn't want to get myself into a situation I couldn't get myself out of. That is, if you're having a hard time, God will deliver you right now. He'll give you everything you need. That's not what this passage is saying. I didn't want to get myself in a pickle. This passage doesn't mean that every single wish that I have will come true. God isn't my fairy godmother. In fact, this passage locates us, even personally and intimately, in a much bigger frame of reality. That is, there is no reality without God, and there is no life without God. Every day is a gift that he gives. Every season he continues to uphold in the world by his divine mercy and forbearance. And so actually, whenever we encounter calamity like a pandemic or hardship in our lives, we don't face an absent God. What we actually face are the ramifications of sin. And so we need to recognize God's ongoing sustenance and goodness, even in the face of hardship. And this leads us to the final place of the psalm, the final piece. The Lord will ultimately bring justice. Look at verse 20 with me. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Until now, we've been getting this rich picture that's been anticipating, if you will, an eschatological moment. But here it's revealed finally. For a time, God is graciously and mercifully providing universally. He's knowing some more intimately in relationship. But actually, when that relationship comes to its full fruit, there is salvation as there is judgment. The final word is a sobering one. 
The covenant people will be kept because they know and love the king. That is that by his mercy, they have found favor and he will deliver them. But the wicked, though they've enjoyed temporal life, they will meet eternal death. So the finale, if you will, the conclusion of this psalm is finally interesting. David the king continues in his praise. Right where he began, he's looking at this whole world order and he's saying, I will keep praising God because of this whole frame for reality. I must keep praising him. In fact, David turns and gives an injunction to us, to all, in fact, all flesh. And he says, let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. This is a very real command and it extends universally. Much like Psalm 2, which warns, kiss the sun. For one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is one king and he must be honored. The command in so many ways, though, seems unnecessary. It seems unnecessary in view of such a rich depiction of God's character and his actions on display in the psalm, and yet the world receives day in and day out without denying. They cannot deny that they receive every day gifts of life with no recognition of the giver. Far be it from us who know the Lord so intimately, even with his spirit in our hearts, to neglect giving the Lord praise that he is owed. It may seem legalistic to say a psalm like this three times a day, like the Jews used to. But I wonder if there was wisdom in it because of that constant need for a reminder of reality. We have one king over us, a king who provides graciously for all, and he is most deserving of praise. Let's pray. Father, please attune our hearts to praise. Help us to recognize that you provide for all commonly and even those that are near to you in covenant relationship. Thank you most specifically for hearing our prayers because of your son. Thank you for hearing our cries for deliverance and saving us by his blood. And thank you for the promise that we have of eternal satisfaction with you. We are so grateful for the gifts that you give us every day. Forgive us for the times that we forget to thank the giver of every good and perfect gift. You, the Father of lights, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.